today. And you know, sometimes when we're not projecting an accurate image of God through our thoughts and words and actions, we will struggle in our relationships. And so I heard about this pastor and song leader or worship leader. And by the way, this isn't taken from the headlines, okay? We don't have this problem at Jenison. It's just a funny story to get us thinking. But the pastor and the worship leader were not getting along, and it started to spill over into the the gatherings. And one Sunday, the pastor talked about the importance of being a giver. And afterward, the song leader and worship leader got up and led the song, Jesus Paid It All. The next week, the pastor talked about gossiping and watching your tongue, and the worship leader got up and led, I love to tell the story. Another week, the pastor talked about being willing to change, and the worship leader got up and led, I shall not be moved. (laughs) The pastor was so frustrated that he, he resigned, and he told the congregation, Jesus brought me here, and Jesus is taking me away. And the worship leader then led the congregation in singing, what a friend we have in Jesus. When we are not properly and accurately reflecting and projecting God's image because we fail to embrace that in our lives, we are going to have difficulties in relationships and difficulties in other places as well. And today I just want to talk to you about this aspect that we are created in God's image and this is part of who we are. So today I just want to break our study down into a few compartments as we look at it together. We're going to look at what this does not mean. We're going to look at where we find this teaching of the image of God in the New Testament as well. We, we pointed out to you some Old Testament passages but it's talked about in the New Testament too. And then I want to answer the question, so what? What does this theology mean to me and and how can I make it practical? How should it impact me in my everyday life? It's more than just a theological truth. And I believe we're going to look at that together today in our closing time and hopefully be encouraged and even challenged to grow and to make necessary changes as the Spirit of God leads. So created in, in God's image, what it does not mean. So man is not created to be the image of God. He is created in correspondence with the image of God as as Barth noted. And indeed in Genesis chapter 5 and verse 3 we find when Adam had lived 130 years he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. You see Seth was not Adam and Seth did not become Adam but he was made in the likeness of Adam. Like us, we are not made to be God or to become God, but we are made in his image and in his likeness. There are some today, a part of very successful organized religions, that will tell you that the end of the road is you becoming God. You're going to become a God. That's a misunderstanding, misinterpretation, misapplication of what it means to be made in God's image. We're going to talk about that. So it doesn't mean that we were made to be God or to become gods, as some would teach. But we are made in his likeness and after his image. Leupold put it this way, the double modifying phrase, in our image, after our likeness, 
is in the last analysis nothing more than a phrase which aims to assert with emphasis the idea that man is to be closely patterned after his maker, made in his image. In Genesis chapter 1, chapter 5, and chapter 9, the Old Testament teaching of this theological truth cannot be disputed. In chapter 1, as we've already read, uh, verses 26 and 27, God says, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. In Genesis chapter 5, as we've already read this morning, it says he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female. When they were created, he blessed them and called them mankind. And then in Genesis chapter 9, a very stiff penalty is laid out. We refer to it today as the death penalty. That if a human being's life is taken unjustly by another human being especially, Verse number six makes it very clear that because God made humans in his image, that individual's blood will be required of them if they have murdered another human being. And the basis of that is that humans are made in the image of God. Now, the New Testament is not quiet about this. The Old Testament lays it out from the beginning as we have seen. But the New Testament is certainly not quiet about this. James chapter 3 and verse number 9 puts it this way, that in reference to our tongue, with it, the tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are what? Made in the likeness of God. Now we're not here this morning to do a study on the context of this passage involving the tongue and our words. But within that particular theme, as it's developed in James chapter 3, we have this statement that helps us build our theology of being made in the image or likeness of God. With it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. There are other New Testament passages that talk about the need for renewal of God's image after the fall. And I want us to think about that right now because that is the process that all believers engage with following their belief in Jesus and his finished cross work to save them from the penalty of their sins. Once you do that, once you exercise what I like to call the responsibility of faith, that you put your faith in Christ alone, and what he did on the cross for you to save you from the very penalty of your sin. When you do that, you are taking the first step, as we'll put it in human terms, in a journey that is supposed to lead you to becoming more and more like Jesus. And in that process, you are going to experience, actually, the renewal of God's image. You see, when when Adam and Eve were, were created, the first sin had not been committed. And we know that it wasn't until after the fall that 
that people received, everyone born after them received that sinful nature. In Adam, all are sinners, and in Adam, all die. We are spiritually dead because of original sin. We are spiritually dead because of the fall, and we're in desperate need of salvation. And the image of God because of the fall, while it has not been removed, it has been seriously and powerfully what? Marred because of our sinful nature, because of that flesh that is living inside of us, that sinful nature that's living inside of us that, as Paul so aptly puts it, is literally at war with the Spirit. And we have this constant battle going on in our life. So that we do things that according to the Spirit, we, we really don't want to do. And the things that we really want to do according to the Spirit, we really struggle with doing. And Paul outlines that process and, and really with, with agony, he explains to us, this is the plight that we're in. We have this struggle. What is that struggle? Well, it's a struggle of renewal. It's the struggle of the image of God being renewed in us as we cooperate by God's grace with the Spirit of God. And so because of this, we, we see that God's image has been marred and it needs to be renewed in us. It says nothing of God's perfections. It, it doesn't touch His holiness or who He is as God. It is simply explaining who we are as fallen human beings. So what we're talking about today with the necessity of the renewal of the image of God in us, it does not in any way demean or degrade who God is. It is simply telling accurately who we are after the fall and that we desperately need the image of God renewed in us because of our choice to be sinners. And so we come to Romans chapter 8 and verse 29. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. There's that transformation and renewal process. Those that have come to saving faith in Jesus foreknew and, and predestined in this sense, because of their faith, they were predestined to be conformed to the image of God so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers. And we also know from this same passage, we know that all things do what? Work together for good to them who love God and who are called according to his purpose. Now, that goodness that is contained in every situation in life will work out in my life for what purpose? Well, I think verse 29 explains that. Here's the goodness. The goodness is that I know that no season in my life is a waste. The goodness is that I know that no difficulty or challenge in my life is a waste. And it's not God just torturing or punishing me. He has a purpose in all of these things to work out his good and perfect and acceptable will, as Romans chapter 12 talks about. And as I submit to the process, and as I cooperate with the Holy Spirit in the renewal of God's image in me that I so desperately need because of my sinful condition and because of the residue of my depravity, even after my belief, as I conform to that, I'm cooperating with the process, with the plan of God, and I can truly say that all of these things work out together for good. But it's all based on my love for Him. 
It's all based on me loving him and uh, loving him enough to cooperate with the process and to allow his image to be renewed in me. So how do we see these things in life that are meant for our good, to further transform us into the image of the Son of God? How do we view them? I've said this to you many times before, but I think it needs repeating again. I believe that if you really want to know how you view, especially the difficult things, analyze your prayer life during those difficult things. What are you begging God for the most when you're faced with these situations, as Romans 8.28 talks about, that are meant for your good and God's glory? What is your heart cry? Far too often, because we have it so easy in our lives, what do we focus on? Our comfort zone. And we focus on escaping. And I just want you to think honestly and transparently in in your life, analyze your prayer life when you're in these situations that we often put in Romans 8.28. What do your prayers tell you about your view of these things? Do you want to escape them? And get rid of them as quickly as you possibly can? Or while your heart and your emotions for sure and your body want some kind of relief, can you also focus in your spirit on the fact that God wants to use that pain? He wants to use that disease. He wants to use that incapacity. He wants to use that challenging time emotionally. He wants to use all of that hurt and whatever else you are facing in life to make you more like Jesus. Can you focus on that? As well as knowing that in your body it is yearning for wholeness and groaning for its redemption? Now, as I've said to you before, there's nothing wrong with praying for healing and and praying for relief. You see someone suffering and you're not moved to, to pray for them in the sense of their suffering, then we might doubt just how human you are. That's a natural human response to pain and suffering. But what I'm presenting to you today is that it should not be the only response to those things. While our body yearns to be free from pain and to be free from suffering, whether it's emotional or mental or spiritual or physical, every one of those challenges in all of those categories are meant to further transform us into the image of Jesus. Allowing that image to be renewed. So how are we doing with that? Are we embracing that? Are we allowing that work to be accomplished? Or are we too focused on the inconvenience of the trial and the desire to escape that we miss the spiritual side all together? Be careful of that. It is a temptation. And I think our prayers will tell the tale. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, we have these words in verse 18. We all with unveiled faces are looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. This is from the Lord who is the Spirit. Once again, we look into the Scriptures. We learn there about the image of God and who he is and what he looks like, personified, of course, as the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who came and lived here and showed us what what God with flesh looks like. 
I think if we look into the mirror of the scriptures, we see the image of God and it also reveals to us where our image is not matching up to his image. And we are then confronted with the opportunity to embrace change and growth. As difficult as that is, it truly is what we are called to do. What about Colossians chapter 3 and verse 10? And have put on the new self. You are being renewed in knowledge according to the image of your creator. Again, we are not created to be God or to become God. But we are created in his image after his likeness to be conformed, transformed into his image that we would become more like him. The Old Testament lays it out in those creation narratives very well. And it gives us the consequence for destroying someone who's been created in the image of God in an unjust, murderous way. The New Testament echoes that, but it also talks about the growth process post-crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus and defines for us clearly, as we have seen in these passages, what we're supposed to be doing in this life. Now, as we bring this toward the final compartment today that I want to look at with you, we want to answer this question, so what? The Old Testament lays it out clearly. The New Testament echoes that truth. And I just want to walk you through some things that I think are, are practical thoughts, things that, that are built on this theological truth that really should affect our mindset and the way that we're living. I do want to offer you some applications as we near the end of this section. And then I want to spend some time giving you perhaps a couple of devotional thoughts that might help you in your journey as well. So let's answer this question, so what? You, you've told us the theology, you've pointed out to us where these things are in Scripture. What should this mean to me? Well, first of all, we learn from this that it truly is what gives human beings their identity. It's a part of who we are, God making us. It truly forms our identity that we are made with dignity, that we are made in the likeness of God. That has value to it. And that is part of our identity. John Piper wrote these words, the Imago Dei, the image of God, the Latin there for that, is not a quality possessed by man. It is a condition in which he lives, a condition of confrontation established and maintained by the Creator. The Imago Dei is that in man which constitutes him as him, whom God loves. God promises that he loves us. In fact, he says to his children that he will never leave them nor forsake them. He treasures them and loves them. In fact, he loves the world, according to John 3.16. Why is that? Because all of those human beings are made in his image. And he is not willing that any of them should perish and miss out on the opportunity to be renewed and transformed into his image after their fall. But if they don't exercise responsibility of their faith as a gift from God in Jesus as the payment for the penalty of their sin, that process never begins and that path leads to eternal damnation. 
The image of God, next of all, is what makes man human. Man could not lose the image without ceasing to be what he is. Moreover, it's only because man keeps his image of God, even in a broken or distorted form, that man is redeemable and worth redeeming. Part of our humanity is the fact that we are made in the image of God. This truly is a part of our identity. And we, in this state, are redeemable and worth redeeming because we are made as human beings in the image of God. That being said, this is also what gives humans equality and dignity. I spoke of dignity earlier. And truly the fact that we are made in the image of God means that we are all made equally. It doesn't matter where you were born. It doesn't matter what ethnicity or gender in which you were born and assigned at birth. You're equal in this sense, being made in the image of God. And because of that, there is dignity attached to you that isn't attached to any other piece of the creation of God in the universe. That is why Genesis 9 is so clear. That is why you have a death penalty prescribed in Genesis 9 when it involves the innocent shedding of blood, or the, the, the shedding of innocent blood, rather, in a murderous way. Your, your life will be taken because humans are made in God's image. So there's a dignity that is assigned to humanity because of them being born in his image that isn't assigned to anything else in the universe. The theologian Wayne Grudem put it this way, every single human being, no matter how much the image of God is marred by sin or illness or weakness or age or any other disability, still has the status of being in God's image and therefore must be treated with the dignity and respect that is due to God's image bearer. This has profound implications for our conduct toward others. It means that people of every race deserve equal dignity and rights. It means that elderly people and children yet unborn deserve full protection and honor as human beings. Why? Because every human life has been created in the image of God and has dignity. It gives us these things. Next of all, as we've already seen, it is why then that a death penalty has been prescribed as punishment for murder according to Genesis chapter 9 and verse 6. Remind us again of this. Whoever sheds man's blood, his blood will be shed by man. For God made man in his image. So murder is punishable by death. As you look throughout the pages of scripture and you compare the two testaments with one another, you look at the Old Testament and you look at the New Testament, you don't really find in the New Testament anything that would undo this particular prescription that you find in Genesis chapter 9 and verse 6. So I believe that it's justifiable 
that this certainly is prescribed as punishment in a just way. You look at the scriptural basis for this type of action and the punishment prescribed, and you find that death penalty is clearly enunciated. You don't find any of the apostles undoing that particular punishment in the New Testament or saying that it was necessarily a part of Old Testament law that is no longer applicable for today. So I think it's important to understand that and know that and to uphold the dignity and the equality of all human life. The other thing that it does, the idea of being made in God's image, it establishes distinctions between humans and the rest of creation. It establishes distinctions and it makes way for some things allowing us as human beings to exercise co-regency with God and to exercise our responsibilities of oversight and management of creation. If this were not true and human beings were never given this spot that is far above the rest of creation, then a lot of what we do in our management and in our stewardship of the creation would not be justifiable. But it is justified because of the place that God gives human beings, the distinction that is made. Again, I say to you, you look back at Genesis 9, and you do not find this ascribed to anything else in all of God's created order. This idea of being made in God's image and this idea of if you take human life, you're going to have to die yourself if it's done in a murderous way. However, many of us here in this room even practice the taking of life all the time, right? You go out on Lake Michigan, you go fishing, you're going to kill that fish, you're going to eat that fish, right? Is that the same as killing a human being? The answer is no. You need heat in your house, and so you go out in the forest and you, you cut down some trees. You kill a tree, right? And you split it up and you let it dry and cure, and then you use it in an appropriate time to heat your house. Is that wrong? Is that punishable by death? No. Or maybe you go hunting. I'm sure we have a lot of hunters in the house, right? You go out deer hunting, and I never knew what it was to how, uh, how sacred opening day was until I moved to Michigan. I'll just put it that way. Wow. Uh, the only equal thing to that that I've ever lived through is being a Hoosier, right? Any other Hoosiers in the house today from Indiana? we got a few. And so uh, what's sacred to us, right, is that opening night of basketball season. It, it's, it's crazy. That's religion in Indiana for sure. Here it's opening season, opening day for hunting season. I remember the first time I realized how serious it was, I, was, I went to class to teach a Bible at a local high school. And about half my class was missing. And I'm like, what in the world's going on? You know, I guess there are some schools that don't even have class. They just cancel the day. It's kind of like a holiday for them. So I've heard. Anything wrong with killing that animal and putting it in your freezer to sustain your life? No. God allows that. Why? There's one thing in his created order that's made in his image that is off limits for that type of cultivation. And that's human beings. The animals... The fish, the fowl of the air, and everything else are under us, and we can utilize them and use them for the sustenance of life and still be within his will 
without sin. And that involves everything. I mentioned cutting down a tree. That's fine too. If you need to do that, that's fine. There'll be people irritated seven ways to Sunday, right, by hearing that. But that's okay because God made it that way. The difference is we are made in God's image. It establishes distinctions then between us and everything else in creation. As a result, of course, there's value here, right? The creation narrative is marked by an obvious interruption in flow. You're reading through all of the the cadence, if you will, uh, the evening and the morning were this day and so on, and it's kind of like a cadence through Scripture, and all of a sudden the brakes are put on. Verse 26 of Genesis 1, what does it say there? Then God said, it's an interjection, it's a, it's a stop of the flow. It's, it, we don't make more of this than what's here, but God certainly is making a point, isn't he? He's going to say some things here different from anything else he has said previously that have been recorded in this creation narrative. And he says it very clearly, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And then he goes a step further. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God and created them male and female. Value is given here that isn't given to anyone or anything else in creation. And it's like God breaks the cadence to make a point about humanity. There is value. Also, there is dominion. That is clearly spelled out in this passage in Genesis 1. They will rule. Period. It's never turned around the other way. (laughs) It's never said that any other life is more important than human life. It's never said that any other part of creation is supposed to rule and have dominion. That responsibility is given only to humans. It highlights stewardship and thus accountability. Now, I said to you earlier, you go out on the lake and you catch some lake trout or salmon or whatever you like to eat you bring that home put it in your freezer you go out hunting opening day and beyond and you you harvest an animal or however many tags you're legally allowed to have and you harvest those animals and you bring them home put them in your freezer you sustain life you need trees or something you cut those down for whatever purpose heating building of things whatever you might take a piece of land and clear it of all the stuff that's growing on it because you need to build a house, whatever. And you're, you're going in and you're having dominion over what God's given you to, to sustain life and to, to be here for his purposes. I think we must also emphasize that in this stewardship, we are still living in God's universe, right? So we need to treat it like it's God's. It belongs to him. It it doesn't belong to us. As much as we have dominion over everything, basically, ownership is never transferred to us. We are still stewards. And what God has given to us is a part of our stewardship, and that makes us accountable to him. 
So as much as we talk about having dominion and being able to utilize things, harvest things, harness things in this creation because we have dominion, it doesn't mean that we do all of that without accountability. So we should no more waste God's resources than we would waste our own, right? Of course. Again, I'm not saying go out and hug a tree this morning. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying that what you've been given dominion over doesn't belong to you. And I think there's going to be a measure of accountability in this. Dominion doesn't equal recklessness. Dominion doesn't equal waste. Those are not characteristics of the God in whose image you've been made. And nothing about your stewardship and dominion over his creation should ever be reflective of anything that is inconsistent with his character and nature. At that point, you are not accurately projecting the image of the God in which you've been made. So keep that in mind. Be careful. Don't be reckless. Don't be wasteful. Think about it this way, that nothing you do as having dominion over God's creation should ever be inconsistent with his character and his nature. Also in all of this, we see humans have intelligence too. Human beings have intelligence as well as they have dominion because having dominion necessitates a superior intelligence. If we didn't have this superior intelligence, and I know there are times when you wonder whether or not someone does have superior intelligence, but they do, regardless of what you may think about them. Intelligence is part of this. Intelligent human beings are those who can have uh, dominion. Otherwise, if the animals were smarter than us, there'd be a problem there, wouldn't there? Right? Intelligence. God's given us these things according to the fact that we're intelligent that we can cultivate things, that we can take care of things, that we can tend to things. We have that ability because of intelligence. And likewise, God being supremely intelligence. In this, we have spirituality too. God is spiritual, and he breathed into man a living soul which has eternal duration. We're made in his image. And then finally, we also have moral capacity. God is holy and being made in his image involves moral awareness and discernment. We're made in his image. So what does that mean? I think at least this list helps to define and give us an answer to that question. Now let me talk to you about some applications and then you can write down some of these things if you want to, or I encourage you to go home and mull all this over and think about what it means and how you can apply it. Don't just let it be a theology lesson. Let it affect and impact the way that you're living. Let me give you three things in closing. First of all, those who understand that they are image bearers embrace the fact that their life is about more than them, right? There's something bigger going on here. It's not just me. It's the fact that I've been made in someone's image by my creator God to whom I am accountable and so on. This is bigger than me. Life is not just about me, but I'm made in someone's image and I'm supposed to be projecting that image to others in an accurate way. Here's a second thing maybe to think about by way of application. 
Those who understand that they are image bearers realize that all their capacities are to be used to represent and project God for the purpose of bringing him glory. They remember the damage caused by an inaccurate projection. These are profound thoughts for those of you who have children still in your home. You look at that and you read anyone who's written about this and they'll tell you quickly that the father plays a very huge role in the perception of God by the kids, right? You affect the way your kids perceive God and who he is by the way you relate to them and by the way you interact with them. Now that ought to stop every one of us in our tracks, right, who have kids. Wow, think about that. So if I'm accurately projecting the image of God in which I've been created, that I'm doing a good job at showing my children who God is. But if I do that inaccurately, and I dim or distort their view of God, think about the damage that that causes. And you can take it outside of the family too, can't you? Take it out into the marketplace. Take it out into where we live. There is a world that desperately needs to see an accurate projection of the image of God by the way I am living my life. What happens when there's an inaccurate projection? A lot of bad and terrible consequences. We don't want to be in that category and we will be at times because we're not perfect. Our children will not always learn an accurate presentation of God by looking at us, for sure. Nor will the world around us always see God for who he really is because we will sin. But what do we do with that sin? And how do we get back on track to being transformed into the image of Jesus? Here's a third thing I want you to think about by way of application. Those who understand that they are image bearers, resign themselves to showing unbelievers who God is by the way they live. They are going through life, developing relationships, and making disciples. Let me show you Jesus. Let me show you God's love. Let me develop a deep relationship with you for the purpose of letting you see who God is, the one who loves you supremely, who sent his son to die on the cross for all of your sins, to pay sin's penalty, and to give you a home in heaven in his eternal presence. Let me show you him by projecting the image in which I have been made. You see, really... Everything in life, the way we do life, we should never do it with any thought, with any word, with any action, with any motivation that is inconsistent with the character and nature of God in whose image we've been made. And if we settle with that and we hold ourselves to that standard and when we fall short, we deal with that sin. We will certainly be well on our way to going through this life, making disciples as we have been commissioned to do, which defines the purpose for why we're here. So I think this idea of being made in God's image ties in directly with our mission 
And if we don't understand this and live this out well, we're going to fall short of the mission to which we've been called. Let's pray together. Father, help us today to understand the theology behind all of this. But help us, Father, beyond that, to let that theology reside in our hearts and change us from the inside out. Help us truly to pursue Jesus and not doing anything, thinking anything, saying anything, or being motivated by anything that would be inconsistent and contrary to your very character and nature. And God, if there is something that's prevalent right now that we know is inconsistent with you, help us to bring that to you, confess that to you, and change for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.